Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand. Now, nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. And this time we'll introduce you to a long, silent name from the past of KCBS Radio. His name was Al Douglas. And in the early to mid-1960s, he was well-known on the radio station. Let's go ahead and read an excerpt from a profile on Al Douglas done by the Marin Independent Journal in June of 1964. A simple description of the program would be misleading because Al's routine does not fit into easy categories. His guest list is as likely to include a Shakespearean scholar as a flying saucer enthusiast, and his conversation may begin with nuclear fission and end up with deep water fishing. Or he may devote the entire evening to some special project, as was the case last month when he brought together the two leading opponents In the Northern California pay TV controversy, he was, by the way, the first to get representatives from both sides to appear at the same time. However, the scholarly ex-sports director does have some regular features. Most frequent are his conversations with visiting and local personalities. On Viewpoint, he invites the radio audience to call in and express opinions on such topics as what's happening to our mortality or the new trend in our relations with Russia. He ends his day with the news and sports at 11 p.m., but Al applies his own particular brand of talent most successfully to the 8.30 to 10 spot, called, appropriately enough, An Evening with Al Douglas. Being a conscientious host, Al channels all his energy toward preparing features and interviews which cause his listeners to feel that they have, in fact, spent the evening as his special guest. One night a week, he reads a short story for his True Tales of the West feature. And twice a week, he spotlights travels with the Douglases, suggestions for family trips in California and San Francisco. One of Al's most popular features is the story behind the song, during which he reads a letter from one of his listeners relating a personal story associated with the listener's favorite song. Again, from the Marin Independent Journal, a profile published in June of 1964. This segment of Al Douglas's work on KCBS comes from November of 1963 and is courtesy of the California Historical Radio Society Bay Area Radio Museum collection. He interviews the legendary photographer Ansel Adams. It aired on KCBS in November of 1963. Tonight, uh, we're very uh, privileged indeed to have as uh, one of our guests, uh, Mr. Ansel Adams. And uh, Mr. Adams, uh, an outstanding photographer, as a matter of fact, uh, from now through December 8th, uh, you can see some of the works of Ansel Adams in an exhibit at the De Young Museum entitled Ansel Adams, 40 Years of Photography, uh, over at the De Young Museum. When we speak of 40 years of photography, uh, Mr. Adams, are we literally correct? Are we showing some of your earliest works that were made 40 years ago? Yes, it's some um, 1923. Now tell us yeah, about the 1923 see. pictures. Well, I go back a few years before that and uh, say that I had a box brownie, a two and a quarter, two and a quarter in Yosemite in 1916. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
What could you see with a box of brownie? Uh, well, you're, you're talking about the grandeur of nature and your yes. endless salmon. You've got yourself a $2.50 camera. What can yes. you do with it? Well, I got a few very good images with it. But, of mm -hmm. course, I know that was only 14 years old. Mm -hmm. This was 1916. And then I think the next adventure was a best pocket Kodak, which was even smaller. And then I returned to 1917, and in my, my 1918, I was really excited and had an old view camera. And uh, I was studying music at the time, and I spent my summers in the mountains, and everybody who goes to the mountains usually photographs. And I was bitten very badly by the, by the bug. Mm -hmm. And in 1923, I had a, graduated to a six-and-a-half, eight-and-a-half uh, plate camera. Mr. Adams, uh, I understand from reading some material about you that uh, it was a, uh, quite a choice that you had to make, that you did have a, a real start in music, and that you were considered by many quite good and uh, quite adaptable and uh, could easily have had a future in music. Uh, did you feel that strongly about your music at the time you made your decision, or as you said, I got the bug? Well, yes, it was difficult, and uh, I think the... The final decision wasn't made immediately. I thought for a while I could do both. Mm -hmm. And then that was proved to be impossible. And uh, I would say about 1932, I had a definite, I'd made a definite decision to be a professional photographer. Not when you say professional yeah. photographer as such, Mr. Adams, are we talking about making it one's life's work and being able to make a living as a result of practicing uh, photography? Yes. I think in photography we use the term amateur uh, in the sense of a person who loves the medium uh, but does not have to make his living. And some of the greatest photographers have been amateurs mm -hmm. in, in that sense of the term. The professional is somebody who, who professes photography as a career, as a, as a way of, of living. But well, did you feel there was a market yeah. for the kind of thing you want to do? I, I understand your first efforts were definitely uh, uh, pictures in nature. Uh, some of the things you did at Yosemite and in the Sierra yeah. are, are highly prized today. Well, uh, what kind of market do we have for that kind of photography? Uh, I did not have <coughs> too much actual market uh, until about 1930. Mm -hmm. Actually, in 1927, Albert Bender, the art patron here, encouraged me to do a portfolio of uh, prints, 18 prints. And uh, he was a philanthropist and got every, all his friends to buy it, and it was quite a fantastic Mm -hmm. uh, procedures, $50 a set, and he, about two hours he be sold enough to pay for the whole project. Mm -hmm. And then he gave me things to do, copying works of art and, and portraiture, and so I, I really began making a little money out of music in the 1927-28. How much help was that to you? Could you have survived without this patron at uh, that I particular time? Well, nobody knows that. I, I don't I don't think I would have gotten into photography if it hadn't been for him. Kind of an interlocking chain of events. Well, what did he see? Did he, in, did he intellectualize this? How did he no, feel about he photography? Was, he just uh, liked to help young people, and he did an enormous amount of good for people in a, in a very uh, wonderful and uh, a non-destructive way. Mm -hmm. so it was a real philanthropic point of view. He'd rather uh, give somebody a specific job for some purpose and... Uh, than just give them money, you know. Well, is that isn't that a rare thing, especially in a well, you could almost call yeah. it a, an infant art uh, photography to have yeah. someone become a sponsor. Well, Albert Bender was a was a very rare person, and uh, I think, as I say, if it hadn't been for him, I well might have continued the music. 
but that those things are impossible to say. You know, we had a photographer here uh, the other day. We were talking to Phil Palmer, and I was challenging Mr. Palmer, as I suppose I'm about to challenge you, about the, the mechanical aspects of photography as compared to what people would assume to be a great art and creative force in, say, painting. Um, Mr. Palmer uh, became quite eloquent on his uh, love for photography and what it meant, and I'm sure uh, you feel equally as strong. How about the charge that this is too mechanical well, uh, to ever really be uh, thought of in terms of a great painting that hangs in the museum? Uh, I used to get it from my friends who <laughs> were very <laughs> unhappy about me leaving music. I knew this was a question, uh, a sophomore-type question, but go ahead. No, but they would say, how can a mechanical device such as a camera express the human soul? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Stiglitz proved that it wouldn't, doesn't make a bit of difference what instrument you use. If there's a soul to express, it can be expressed. But I think the average person does not realize the steps in in the production of, of a photograph. And if you want, I'll try to simplify. You'll have to. You're that. talking yeah. to me, you recall. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that the artist in photography is always in a condition uh, of, of making a photograph. And it's an inherent desire. Everything he looks in the world, it's instinctive or intuitive that he sees it perhaps as a picture. In some way, he'll organize things in space. And uh, not as a painter does, but uh, just noticing the, the actual relationships of shapes and masses and scale, <coughs> and then, <coughs> pardon me, then establishes a point of view where those shapes, or what we call configurations and chaos, uh, become organized. And uh, all this is a highly intuitive process, at least as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So I then have, as I said, we, we have first the, the continuous desire to see and to, and to photograph, then we uh, experience a kind of recognition of some possibility, and then we start visualizing the final picture, trying to see it as it will be finished, mm-hmm. and we establish the point of view and determine the exposure and the related development, and we then have our, we call our negative. Well, this brings uh, an interesting point to me. You talk about seeing it, in, uh, for lack of a better expression, in your mind's eye, as, as it will be. Uh, how many times will you have to look at a particular thing be, uh, or retake the photograph before you're uh, satisfied that you've got that picture you want? Well, I think that any retake <coughs> very rarely happens. I think it doesn't. That, uh, it's interesting. If you know your work and you know your techniques, you get it. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have to retake and fuss with it, it that's almost a, a proof that you won't get anything. Have you ever had that situation? Oh, yes. I've made many failures. Mm-hmm. But I never is that the first it. basis for failure? Yeah. The fact that you were, are you, do you feel you're on the verge of failure the moment you have to retake it? Uh, yes, if I have any sense of uncertainty, mm-hmm. then I feel that it's going to be a failure for me. Now there are some photographers, especially the big, illustrative people, who of course, uh, the greater part of their work is the actual arrangement or contrivance of objects, average advertising photographs, and some of course extremely beautiful. But it seems to me that in many cases. Um, the art quality or the aesthetic quality exists in the arrangement and the camera then merely records. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very different thing. Well, okay. in photographing a, a subject in nature as they stand, uh, mm-hmm. your, your uh, works that have, uh, have received so much attention in the uh, uh, Yosemite, uh, what do you wait for in terms of light and so forth since the, the object is never moving or it is pretty constant in that, in that sense? Well, actually, things are always changing. And 
some people will wait. I never was patient enough to wait because I agreed with Edward Weston that if I waited too long here, I lost something over there that might be better. Mm-hmm. So many of my photographs, which I considered my best ones, were uh, I almost lost them. It's a matter of time, mm-hmm. a few seconds. What would you have lost in those few well, seconds? I just would have lost the, 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 uh, the subject would have changed and the visualization, uh, the first visualization would have gone and perhaps the second one wouldn't have uh, appeared, you see. <laughs> How many uh, people do understand the, the nuances of what we're talking about? Uh, or do people just take a look and say, gee, that's a pretty mountain? Well, I think that the majority of people do that. And that's what Coleridge spoke of. Uh, when he said that all art was a combination of the external and the internal. Mm-hmm. And so I call the, the scene as the external event. And then the picture of the scene is my internal event. And mm-hmm. the, the same mountain could be fully, fully photographed, and a mountaineer might be interested as a factual record. Yes. But the point is, it would uh, most certainly would not have a profound emotional effect. That's a very fine image. Uh, can produce. And of course, Edward Weston proved that many years ago in his photographs of Point Lovis, wonderful rocks. And the, about the first time that any revelation in nature of that kind had been made. Well, not exactly, I'm not historically correct, but at least it was the most important work. We have been talking by way of recording uh, tonight to Ansel Adams, whose 40 years of photography is currently on exhibit at the De Young Museum and will be. Uh, on exhibit uh, through December the 8th. I think it's important we get the hours that the museum is open, so... Uh, it's 10 to 5. 10 to 5. 10 Thank to you, five. Mr. Adams. We'll be talking to Mr. Seven Adams... Seven days a week. <laughs> right, seven days a week. We'll be talking to Mr. Adams by way of recording later in the week. Currently on exhibit at the De Young Museum in San Francisco, an outstanding group of photographs by Ansel Adams, uh, in which uh, 40 years of this artist's work is on display, or representative uh, pieces of his work are on display. And when I say representative pieces, uh, am I correct? Uh, how many uh, do we have on display, Mr. Adams? About 454. Could you possibly uh, give us any idea of how many photographs you've taken in this 40-year period we're talking about? Well, I have in my vault over 17,000 catalogs and somewhere between five and 8,000 uncatalogued. And I'm sorry to say that I have many negatives, some very fine ones that have yet to be printed. Mm-hmm. I never could catch up with my printing. Do you know, can you recall, even though you don't have them catalogued, what you have taken and uh, what yes. pictures to your mind? Well, I might have some difficulty in, in remembering uh, all of the stuff, or I can go into the catalog and, and uh, think up duplicates and near duplicates of related pictures. Mm-hmm. But the instant I see a negative, uh, I usually can recreate the whole process and have no trouble at all in, in revisualizing the print that I want. All right, now, in terms of, of printing, uh, Mr. Adams, I assume you do all your own printing. How important is the print? Uh, I suppose to me it is the most important thing because this is what I see. Uh, in relation to you, how much time do you put in technically to get that print? Oh, well, that, that is a very varying... Uh, I don't know how to classify the divisions of time. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you work very fast. Uh, sometimes a print can be a very obdurate object, if I can use the term. Mm-hmm. And uh, you work uh, without result. Finally, you get it or think you get it. And then when the print is finally dry, you are disappointed with it. You haven't got your tonal levels uh, that you desired because the print, of course, changes very much 
from its wet condition mm-hmm. in the dark room to its dry condition when mounted. Would you allow anyone else to uh, develop your pictures, Mr. Adams, or, or couldn't it be done that way? No, anybody who has worked out uh, the technique along my own, what I call the zone system, uh, approach, and was a good, safe craftsman, could develop my negatives on simple instruction. Mm-hmm. And knowing what my developer was and knowing what normal, a normal minus, a normal plus development meant. Yes. Uh, so I had insist, quite often having trusted my negatives to other people with perfectly good results. Adam, how much have you done? Yes, in terms of very large mural type uh, effects. Well, uh, when you're talking about the grandeur of nature, I assume this lends itself pretty well to very large presentations, does it not? Yeah, you'll see some out at the museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, 40 by 60 inches, mm-hmm. 40 by 70 inches. Technically, how is a 40 by 70 inch uh, print made? Oh, that's easy. The paper, of course, comes in rolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't you call them photo murals. That's a very bad word anyway. It means a photograph is pasted on the wall. Most of them are very poor quality. Um, the problem is to get a large print, uh, which is conceived uh, on what we might call a, a concept of a large image. Now, sometimes I have many of my older photographs which do lend themselves, but sometimes they, they don't. Sometimes a, a photograph that is perfectly beautiful in 8 by 10 is not good even in 1620. Mm-hmm. Uh, the paper comes, as I said, in rolls, and the fine, high-quality paper is comes in about 40-inch width. So I have a simple easel, vertical easel, and I just roll down the paper like you pull down a window blind. Mm-hmm. And the easel is metal, so the paper is held on by magnets, and then the section is trimmed off, and the picture is exposed, just like an ordinary enlargement. Are there any limits to, uh, to how large a, a photograph can be blown up? To your well, no, you can go to any size you want in, in sections. I mean, I've made photographs as much as 12 sections. Mm-hmm. But the aesthetic quality, of course, is something else. By that you mean the, uh, the smaller a print, the sharper it will be? Well, there's really an appropriate size. And when you get enlarged, <coughs> you have a negative enlarged over a certain... Uh, well, how would I put it? If you, if you enlarge a negative, you'll say so many linear diameters, mm-hmm. uh, it may hold at just uh, the equivalent of reading distance I see. up to a certain size. Then it begins to fall apart. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it at a greater distance, it'll pull itself together again. So you theoretically, I suppose, could have a 100 by 200 foot photograph, and if you could see it from a sufficient distance, it yes. might be extremely impressive. Mr. Adams, uh, many times uh, painters are commissioned uh, to put murals in public buildings and so forth. Um, how are uh, fine photographers like yourself doing in this direction? Are, uh, are any public buildings, to your knowledge, uh, state buildings, asking for photographic murals uh, rather than uh, a hand-painted object? Uh, no, not that I know of. There's lots of commercial murals done. But just before the war, I was appointed World War Two. I was appointed uh, photo muralist for the Department of the Interior. Yes. And I started out on it was a big project, and then the war killed that. Well, how much work had you done? I before just the made pro- some eighties. I never gotten into the into the enlarged stage. What was the purpose? Were you going to uh, help uh, decorate some of the uh, Secretary Ickes, buildings? Secretary Ickes wanted uh, photographs, creative photographs of the national parks in the interior building. Mm-hmm. There were some rather dreadful paintings. <laughs> uh, the WPA period. Some workers at that period were very fine, but this, these were fairly dismal. Mm-hmm. And he felt that uh, uh, an exciting photograph would have more meaning. Did he see any of your work? Oh, yes. 
was he enthused about the project yes. after he, seeing it? He was very uh, understanding and very, very enthused. But obviously, the war on. It was Have you ever tried to reinstitute the idea? Uh, no. After the war, then there was some troubles. You know, I think the Ickes resigned and the project died. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had then the Guggenheim Fellowship, which carried it on, but not with the mural intention. What did the Guggenheim Fellowship mean to you, Mr. Adams, in terms of your work? Well, it was extremely important. It's a big boost to begin with, mm-hmm. a great honor. Uh, Had this been awarded to photographers before? Edward Weston got the first one. I see. And I forget when uh, where I came in. I came in as one of the early fellows in photography. Yes. And I've had three. One, and then a renewal, and then, a, then another fellowship. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm still finishing that third one. And it's but it is big, unusual, though, for a uh, for a photographer to uh, achieve a Guggenheim Fellow. Well, relatively so. But Dor- uh, Dorothea Lang and uh, uh, Brett Weston, John Shakovsky, who's now director of photography at the Museum of Modern Art, mm-hmm. uh, and quite a few others have. I think there was two given this last year. Right. It's usually one. Uh, it's usually one. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about 40 years of photography oh. for Ansel Adams. Uh, what has happened to photography in 40 years? Could you uh, summarize it in your own well, mind? I'm going to uh, quote a marvelous statement by Charles Sheila, who was a great photographer and one of our great painters. And we were looking at a historical show at the Museum of Modern Art, everything from David Octavius Hill, about 1844, uh, on up to the latest work. And uh, Sheila looked very wise for a moment and then said, isn't it, ast- uh, isn't it astonishing how photography has advanced without improving? <laughs> <laughs> which, which actually is um, perhaps not really fair to say, but the, uh, the, some of the early photographs have an extraordinarily high level mm-hmm. of art quality. And... Have there been any, any innovations then, uh, to your oh, mind, despite yes, what the, the, the quote that you just used? Well, there have been. The, the, one of the points that we were mentioning in the, just a casual conversation was the, the problem of making photography so simple that it takes no brains and no effort to mm-hmm. produce an image. Is this uh, good or bad? It's, well, it's, it's very bad for the art of photography, and it's, but it's very good for the diarist approach. Mm-hmm. The diary now is a small camera, and the processing is done for them. Uh, but there isn't any uh, there isn't any reason again why any particular kind of photography couldn't become uh, a deep art expression mm-hmm. entirely the the way it is used and what it is used on. Remember the earliest days say in eighteen seventies, uh, Jackson or Sullivan and other members of the Brady Group used ponderous glass plates, and they had to coat the plates in the field. And exposed them while they were wet. That's called the wet plate process. And uh, exposures were very long, and then they would take the plate back into this little darkroom tent and process it. And uh, the thought of packing these tons of equipment in glass plates through these mountains of the West it still frightens me, but wonderful pictures resulted. And then, of course, the next step was the, was the dry plate, which could be exposed and uh, developed at any any convenient time later on. Then came the film. I think George Eastman was the pioneer in that. And uh, following the 
pushed film, which was just quite ordinary, and the color sensitivity. We had orthochromatic film, then we had panchromatic film, and then we have high-speed films and fine-grained films, and then, of course, the Polaroid process was invented, and that's quite a miraculous... It's interesting, though, you talked about the techniques yeah. of photography and uh, how little they had changed in terms of what the artists mm -hmm. can see, but the, the mechanical end of it has certainly come a long way. Uh, when we next talk to Mr. Adams, uh, whose current exhibit of 40 Years of Photography is uh, now at the de Young Museum, we'll talk about uh, some of the new mechanics of photography. And uh, since Mr. Uh, Adams uh, did uh, quote an authority on the subject, uh, we're going to ask him how accurate some of his quotes are in regard to his credo and technique and so forth that I have here in front of me. Mr. Adams, uh, we are briefly talking the last time about the mechanics of photography, and uh, you had traced rather quickly for me the various processes that had been used in developing pictures. Uh, the idea of the Polaroid, uh, so very, very quick to use. Uh, I, I guess they have electric eyes on them now, which uh, will determine how much light the shutter needs, and then there's a 50-second process, and they're even doing it in color. Uh, what has this done to uh, the art of photography? Well, a lot of people were worried about it, but the worries are completely unfounded because, as I said before, if the intention of the photographer is to create art, then he can do so with any medium he chooses. The, the Polaroid process is, of course, a silver diffusion process, and uh, the aesthetic feedback uh, potentials of the, of the medium are, are tremendous. Mm -hmm. Have you used uh, Polaroid? Yes, I've used it for years. I've been in fact, I've served as consultant for them for mm -hmm. 10 years and tried lots of the new materials out and worked out, expressed my ideas and uh, able to prove and disprove things in the field. And well, in the, in the advertising of it, uh, you'll yeah. hear words like miraculous and so forth. Well, it uh, is. Is it? Yes, it is, especially the new color process. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's something which uh, I suppose, like all great inventions, is it's basically simple once it's done, <laughs> but it took a, ter a terrific uh, intuitive imagination to, to conceive of the process and then to make the equipment and set up the manufacturing system. All right, the techniques, you being in, the, in this yeah. particular field for so long, have they ever occurred to you that it could be done this way? Uh, you talked about the manufacture and the uh, yeah. technical genius that went into it, but the actual process itself, the theoretical aspects of how it would work. Have they occurred to you and other photographers through the years? Well, I think all of us have known that there was such a thing as a silver diffusion uh, process, but of course it was very difficult to, uh, to control. Uh, I would say that, no, I don't think anybody conceived of the Polaroid process as it, as mm -hmm. it now is. I think this was possible to, to make a diffusion transfer picture, but uh, not certainly not on an amateur level, or mm -hmm. even a, even a professional level. It would have been a laboratory experiment. All right. Uh, if we said someone invented the the Polaroid process, uh, could we give one man the credit for it? Oh yes, it's Dr. Land. Mm -hmm. That's called the Polaroid Land. Mm -hmm. Did he have help, or did he work on this almost by himself? Well, I, he's one of the greatest minds of our time, and. Uh, he always has had help, but he, is, he has always been the directing influence. Mm -hmm. It's his imagination that has created these things. And uh, he's an extremely advanced thinker. He is, uh, many of his assistants 
strangely enough, instead of being chemist or physic or uh, physicist, are art students, mm-hmm. because he claims that the element of imagination is tremendously important. Something of this kind. In some of your early works, uh, in which you did your the photographing in the Yosemite, if you had had a Polaroid land camera at that time, would you have used it? And number two, could you have gotten the same results that uh, you did achieve? Well, again, it's awfully hard to say. If the Polaroid process had been available at that time, I'm quite sure I would have used it. Mm-hmm. But you see, there were so many different ways or different uh, uh, styles of this process. And a lot of people do not realize you have an ordinary rolled film and the new cameras film pack. Then you have the 4x5 system, which goes on standard cameras or fit standard cameras. And then you have the new 4x5, what they call the Type 55, which gives you a negative of extremely fine quality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I suppose that if in 1923 we could get the Type 55 film, I certainly would have used it. And I think I could have done some very, quite remarkable things with it. Are there any serious photographers uh, that you know of who are still rejecting the idea of the Polaroid camera and will not use it, or are mm-hmm. they uh, as liberal as you are in, in your thinking and giving it credit when credit is due? I think a tremendous number of people are using it. Many color photographers use the 4x5 system as a, to study their setups. Now they have color in the 4x5, so then they have a much more precise control. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain things, of course, can't be done. Uh, you can't make a 10-foot enlargement from a 35-millimeter negative, mm-hmm. and uh, certain things in the Polaroid process that uh, just don't, don't work out as well so far as with the, some of the standard processes. All right. Now, I, but, I hate to be this mechanical no. in this subject of uh, photography, but in terms <laughs> of equipment and so forth, uh, is there any ultimate that one uh, would look for in terms of an all-purpose camera? In your own work, uh, which cameras in your, in your own collection do you rely on most? Well, I think the creative photographers of my type who work in the natural scene uh, have to use, to a great extent, the view camera, which has all the adjustments, mm-hmm. controlling focus and distortion, depth of field, interchangeability of lenses, and so on. On the other hand, I have a Hasselblad with four lenses. I get along very fine with that. I have a Zeiss Contorex with four lenses, 35 millimeter. But each one of these cameras has a certain adaptability that can be used for a certain purpose. And it's almost impossible, for instance, to do architectural work without a view camera because you need such things as rising front and swing backs and all the things to control the image. Uh, on the other hand, uh, working with uh, nature and some uh, like water or in, in sports, human activity, the 4x5 cameras are rather ponderous mm-hmm. and uncomfortable instrument to use. How about motion picture cameras and, and, and that particular art form? Have you ever uh, never, dabbled in it? No, I never. Have you ever never. been inclined uh, to do yes, so? Yes, I've thought of it lots and I have used a camera but never very seriously. Mm-hmm. It's a separate world in itself. It's another, another form of art. Well, speaking of your world, I have uh, one of the things I, I enjoy doing is to, uh, since we talk to so many people through the course of the weeks, is to read material that have uh, supposedly been put out by them or things that they have said, and sometimes uh, what the person actually said and what has been put in print fall far short of, uh, of, of ever coming to a truthful line. Uh, we have here some statements by Anthel Adams. And in the next few minutes, I, I like to, to test the reliability of the printed word. 
It says uh, here in terms of your credo, to photograph truthfully and effectively is to see beneath the surfaces. Impression is not enough. Design, style, technique, these two are not enough. Art must reach further than impression or self-revelation. First of all, did you say this? Oh, yes. That's Mm -hmm. from the foreword of Portfolio One. Mm -hmm. These were things that you had actually written. Oh, yes. Yes, if they're in quotes. (laughs) <laughs> they come from that. They definitely come These from These are taken you. from some of the writings. How seriously do you intellectualize about uh, your particular art? Well, I don't intellectualize. I think one of the tragedies of a lot of contemporary art is that people are too self-conscious, <coughs> serving too much as critics. They're ca- trying to combine the, uh, the quality of the critic with the quality of the artist at the same time. And that doesn't mean you can't be highly critical of your work. But the, uh, the creative artist, I think, has to completely trust his intuition. Mm-hmm. And if he begins to intellectualize, uh, the edge is taken off this, uh, this vision. And I've seen it happen time after time with other people, and I know it's happened to me, that uh, the, the, in, the <coughs> intuitive perceptions of things and the visualization of a photograph is based on, on experience. And uh, you, have to, you just have to trust it. And then when it's all over, then you can evaluate it and see where you miss. But I'm one that find it very difficult, if not impossible, uh, to verbalize about my pictures. All right, uh, we won't verbalize about your pictures. No, I mean, I, I meant not in this sense, <laughs> but, in, but in, trying to, in trying to explain in words what a picture means yes. as a photograph. Can I ask you uh, sure. about the 400 pictures that are on exhibit at the Young Museum? Are you perfectly satisfied that they represent uh, truly 40 years well, uh, I, of hard work? I think Mrs. Newhall, that's Nancy Newhall, who's the wife of Beaumont Newhall, who's director of George Eastman House in Rochester. Uh, she's a writer, an artist in her own right, uh, has an absolute genius for arranging exhibits, and planning, designing, installing. And I think that this is probably as fine a job as could possibly have been done in a complete presentation. There are a few holes <coughs> in the work, but uh, I don't think there's any consequence. A few omissions. You know, when you when you hear broadcasts like this, and you and you and something is singled out, uh, you'll immediately find people gravitating towards it at the uh, exhibition. Are there any particular works that uh, you're especially proud of, and uh, you would like uh, a good part of our listening audience to pay attention to? Well, that's awfully hard to say, and I think the way Mrs. Newhall has has planned the show. Almost everything in it has its own, its own individual importance. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's always a few photographs that I think I might like better than others, but I'm quite sure of this, that I could never have put this exhibit together myself. How important is that exhibit in the placement? I mean, uh, the picture is the thing, uh, I would assume, and yet you have spent a great deal of time giving credit to the placement. Oh, well, it is tremendously important because not only do you have to think of the general visual feeling of a room or a wall, but your photographs have to flow. That is, they have there's a passage from one photograph to another in tone quality and design and, and size. And uh, we lay out six or eight prints for a certain wall space, and start juggling them, and suddenly they they fall into place. Perfectly obvious, that's the only way they could be. And then the eye of the mind can go from one to the other with a minimum of resistance, you see. I sure remember that, Mr. Adams, when I uh, go to view your uh, exhibition uh, at the De Young Museum. Our guest, by way of recording, has been the outstanding photographer Ansel Adams. 
and an exhibit of Mr. Adams' work uh, currently on display through December the 8th at the DeYoung Museum here in San Francisco. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.